Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Jets fans. It's Jet Centric number 83. I'm Kishore, your guest host for this week. As a distraction as the NHL season still on pause, I thought we'd take a deep dive into Connor Hellebuck's season and investigate the weird world of goaltender advanced stats. So this week we have on Kat Silverman. She's a reporter for In Goal Magazine and a, the host of Three Cheers for the Goalie Interference podcast and is a wizard when it comes to all things goalie stats. And we get into some of the basics of what advanced goalie stats even are, where we are in the process, and then talk about Hellebuck's season and what she sees as uh, Hellebuck's future with the team and, and where he stands amongst uh, the other goaltenders in the league. Uh, it's a great listen. Hope you enjoy. Uh, and Kat Silverman's one of the best followers on Twitter, so everyone should go follow her after this. Kat Silverman, welcome in to Jet Centric. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to start by going over some of the basics of, of goalie analytics, because I think our listeners are used to us berating them with uh, normal analytics details. And, and I think we've gotten it across like the importance of things like expected goals, like that, you know, with goals, it matters like where the shot is, is taken, um, the, the context that it's in, uh, you know, the, the game conditions, all of that kind of stuff. But when it comes to goalie analytics, I think there's still quite a bit of, mystery around around some of these and and kind of just the the state of it so i was wondering if you could help us get like a primer on some of the like er, goalie analytics that we're hearing about like do you want to walk us through like some of the basics uh goalie analytics numbers that are out there now sure and it's it's kind of funny you say the the basics of the numbers because um the numbers are still very basic when it comes to goaltending analytics there's still I, I don't know if it's possible to overstate how much they're still in their infancy compared to skater analytics, just because finding a way to isolate the impact of a goaltender from a numerical standpoint is still so incredibly difficult. So I know a couple of the the basic stats that people are able to pull up just from ease of, of comprehension and ease of access standpoint. Um, there's, you know, high danger save percentage, uh, goal saved above average, expected save percentage, quality start. There's goals against percentage, uh, stuff like that. Really bad start. <laughs> is it actually really bad starts? Like they add the word really? It is. It's it's really bad starts. It comes, it's a part of the uh, Rob Volman's quality starts metric, which uh, I believe a quality start is currently about a 907 save percentage this year because it's based on the average save percentage for the year you get a quality start if during a recorded start for you you have a league average save percentage or greater in the game so i believe this year the league average save percentage was 907 or 908 it was something in that ballpark so something greater than that or at least 88.5 percent on nights with 20 or fewer shots against so if you get an 88.5 save percentage or a 0.889.897 but you only faced 17 shots you still did a pretty damn good job there so it still counts as a quality start it basically measures games where the goaltender gives their team a 75 percent or better chance of winning the game 
which sort of implies that if the team loses the game, it's on them. It's not necessarily on the goaltender. So a goaltender can have a losing record, but have a positive quality start percentage. And it shows that they are doing their best, but their team is losing. I believe Henrik Lundqvist is a perfect example of that. I think he had that last year and the year before (laughs) and the year before that and the year before that. And the inverse of a quality start is a really bad start. So your quality starts and your really bad starts won't necessarily add up to the total of your recorded start. But a really bad start is any registered start with a save percentage below an 85%. So those are the starts that you gave your team almost no chance to win. If they did win, it was not on you. <laughs> and so that's that's one of my favorite uh, stats just because it is it is funny sounding. Like it's it's not very nice. <laughs> um, but it's it just sort of shows sometimes it's tough to tell consistency from a goaltender right if a guy has a 913 save percentage whether he's consistently hitting that 913 or if he has super high highs and super low lows um a very good example of that is Mike Smith that's a guy who very consistently had lower than expected quality start percentage and a little bit higher really bad starts numbers and then guys like like I said Henrik Lundqvist have that more even keeled number but but yeah all of these stats for goaltenders are still very reliant on the team around them because they're reliant on the number of shots faced and that's something that a goaltender cannot control they can't control how many they face or where they face them from to an extent they can quote unquote cut down the angle and challenge the shooter right but they can only do so much to impact the data points that they are being given to work with, whereas skaters have a little bit more leeway there. So can you control, you know, I'm not asking this for any particular reason. Can you control for a really bad defensive core in your goaltender stats? I mean, I don't know why I would be asking about a really bad defensive core on a Jets <laughs> fan podcast, but can you like isolate a goalie goalie's performance versus you know, a a defensive team that is giving up so many high danger chances versus what their save percentage uh, turns out to be? To an extent, um, you'll see it a little bit in the high danger save percentage. Uh, That's basically the danger save percentages, the high, medium and low danger. They're mapped out each year and it's based on percentage of goals allowed from a certain location on the ice. And so Certain locations, 30% of the shots taken from there are allowed league-wide, so that's considered a high-danger chance. And then certain other places, only 1% or 2% of the shots taken from there go in each year, so that's considered a low-danger chance. And uh, if you have a higher high-danger save percentage, clearly you are showing that even though you have a bad defensive core, you are doing all right there, but you still can't necessarily change the number of high danger shots you're facing and you can't change in particular pre-shot movement. So the number of passes across the slot line, which is something that a lot of stats don't either don't get into very deeply or don't get into very accurately. Cause right now we don't know what the variance is between public and private data when it comes to pre-shot movement, when it comes to how much of that passing data is being incorporated and how much of it's being incorporated correctly. So to an extent, a goaltender like, for example, Connor Hellebuck, who 
may not have the best defensive core in front of him. Um, his numbers are automatically just going to sink a little bit lower than if he had an easier workload just because energy conservation, I guess, is the best way to put it. You know, he's he's working harder every game. So even if he is an elite goaltender, unless he is truly like head and shoulders above everyone else, his numbers are still going to see just a little bit of a slip for it. When it comes to the deficiencies that you, you started talking about, uh, the fact that all of these goalie stats are still in their their uh, infancy, uh, like where do we need to go with some of these advanced goalie stats beyond like the passing? Are there other things that we need to account for that we're just not there yet? I think the passing is the biggest one just because it shows how little preparation time a goaltender has before they get to take a shot, right? It shows how how frequently the puck is changing sides of the ice before it's getting to them. Um, screens are a big part of that too. How many goaltenders are getting screened by their own defense and by the other team. Um, sometimes the the defensive structure, I know that the Florida Panthers are doing a very bad job of that this year. They play their defense to the perimeter. And so when a guy gets in front from the other team, that automatically the opposition does a very good job of screening Sergei Bobrovsky and it's showing in his numbers. Uh, there are other teams like the New York Rangers and to an extent the Winnipeg Jets that their defense sometimes tends to screen them themselves. <laughs> and so knowing a little bit more about that data itself um, can help just from once again, just that data collection, it shows how much harder a goaltender is needing to work to make the same save, even if it's coming from, like I said, that same quote unquote high danger location. Um, I think also where shots arrive on the net, high glove, top of the net, bottom of the net, five hole, under the arm, which side of the net it's coming on. That's also good information that I think certain companies are tracking. I know uh, I think Double Blue, ClearSight Analytics, maybe SportsLogic are all tracking that to a certain extent. But uh, the more publicly available that data becomes, the more we're going to be able to tell really which goaltenders are the most efficient in certain areas once they've gotten there with that pre-shot movement. Do we have a sense of of how many teams are are using these advanced sets in how they uh, not only prepare their goalies, but actually structure their defensive systems. Like I've heard Robin Lehner talk pretty openly that he tracks quality starts as a stat, you know, that he measures himself against. But do we know, like, are the goalies themselves like deep in this world or are they still kind of reliant on, uh, on um, old school mentality? I'll just put it that way. It's, it's tough to tell. Um, I would be willing to say that at least three quarters, if not more, of the NHL has access to that advanced data, whether they're contracted through a company like Statsleets, uh, SportsLogic, ClearSight Analytics. A lot of them contract that stuff out. Some of them have in-house analytics groups that are also tracking that data. Um, the bigger question is how many coaches have someone who works as an intermediary to help them explain that data. So every team is getting all of this information about the passing, the tracking, the pre-shot movement, but it takes a very different kind of analyst from someone who's actually mapping out the data to really explain to a coach, this is where we're seeing the inefficiency. This is how 
you need to basically change up the system to make it work correctly. And then on the coach's part to explain to the team in a way that the players know what they need to change without getting bogged down by the numbers. Because in theory, the players should be aware of where they aren't doing well, but they shouldn't be getting bogged down in the numbers. That's enough to make their head spin. Um, It's enough to make our head spin sometimes. If you're like Paul Maurice and you're saying, okay, like we can see Connor Hellebuck really struggles uh, with a, you know, passes across the slot. I know every goalie does, but like he particularly struggles going laterally. Uh, What if we just let everyone just take shots straight on from him and like realign our defensive core in a way to take across, take away shots across the crease? I know that's like an extreme example, but do we have a sense that anyone's really doing that? Like even somebody like Carolina or Toronto who has high, like put a lot of investment in that. You see that happening already. Carolina does it. Um, I think the Anaheim Ducks attempted to, and then their team became very bad. And it wasn't so much attempting to allow a lot of straight on shots as just allowing a lot of shots, period. Um, You see it in teams that clog up their slot line very well. They're teams that maybe allow more shots, but don't necessarily allow a lot of pre-shot movement. Um, Like you said, Carolina, that's a team that does it incredibly well. Um, But yeah, we definitely see coaches that are at the very least attempting to utilize it. It's, it's still a work in progress. I think a lot of coaches are having to change their mentality, right? They're having to learn all this information for themselves, learn how to present it to their players, learn how to rework their, their systems, excuse me, so that it works correctly and then relay it to the goaltender so that the coaches on the goaltending side understand what the rest of the team is doing so that there's proper communication on the ice. And some of that also comes down to proper off-ice training for the goalies. You know, if you're changing up in a significant way the amount of movement a goaltender needs in a certain direction or a certain area, uh, you need to change up the way he's training. He or she is training so that they're not being overworked or so that they're not pulling certain muscles that they're paying more attention to it. They're stretching in the right way. They're mentally training for things the right way because uh, they can get really hurt. And last question before we dive into Connor Hellbuck in, in particular, are there any goalie stats we should just be ignoring? Like in the vein of plus minus kind of doesn't mean uh, what we think it means. Like are there goalie stats that, that have been traditionally reported on for a long time that we should just kind of throw out the window? Wins is the the biggest one for me. Uh, Wins mean absolutely nothing. Um, And sometimes we see, particularly when it comes to younger goaltenders, when we're looking at the Mike Richter Award, when we're looking at which goaltenders deserve the AHL goalie of the year, which goaltenders deserve to be in Calder consideration, we look at their wins and that means nothing. (laughs) Like I said, there are guys like Henrik Lundqvist who are doing their best and John Gibson. I mean, that's a guy who does his darndest to keep his team in games and plays incredibly well and they lose anyway because there's nothing he can do. Um, And conversely, there are guys who have a very easy go of it and get a lot of wins. Um, maybe without having to do quite quite as much work. Um, and then goals against average just isn't statistically significant anymore. When you're looking at it within a team and within a similar shot variance, um, it can mean something. 
But for the most part, the goals against average is going to be higher on a bad team, no matter how good the goalie is. And it's going to be lower on an easy team, no matter how bad the goalie is. And so we see that brought up a lot, right? We see, oh, this goaltender has a 2.04 goals against average. This one has a 3.1 goals against average. And they may be playing very similar quality games, just playing on two very different teams. And it just, it doesn't quite give, enough information to really show if a goaltender is struggling or not. Uh, so let's talk about Hellebuck. In most of the, uh, from writers, he seemed to be the runaway uh, Vezina winner, uh, according to a lot of them. Do you do you agree? Was he sort of the, the Vezina winner this year? Was he the, the top goalie performer? I think he, he made a very good case for it. Um, towards the end of the year, I actually haven't had a chance to sit down and really take a look at where everybody ended up because so many people were going on hot streaks and somewhere at that point where they were cooling off just based on difficulty of schedule. But I think he, at the very least, if we do our voting right now and we hand out the award based on a truly suspended season, I think he's at the very least a finalist, if not the winner outright. So I want to first talk about his usage. So I think when the season uh, was was stopped. He uh, was tied with Carey Price for the most games played from any goalie, and he was on pace for something like seventy games played for a goaltender, which like seems unheard of right now to have that much goalie usage. Uh, what's your take on his usage? And when we're seeing uh, like a lot of teams like try to cap their goaltender starts at like fifty five to sixty at most. I think that just based on the way things were going towards the end there, I think that there's a good chance that they were they were going to give him a bit of a rest once once they were actually a little bit more comfortably in the playoffs. I think that was the biggest problem. I think almost every team that can afford to is tandeming their goaltenders. And unfortunately, I think uh, Laurent Brassois didn't necessarily have the start to the season that he needed to have. Um, although Hellebuck didn't necessarily either. Um, I think the team made it kind of tough for either of them to really shine at the start of the year. But yeah, it looks kind of like just based on the starts they were giving LB towards towards the end there that maybe they were going to use him once they were firm, more firmly in the playoff picture, use him a little more frequently. Uh, I do think it's a little bizarre that he was on pace for, for 70 starts because like you said, at this point, that's, that's unheard of and and for good reason too, you know. A lot of teams uh finally figured out that the teams that were playing their goaltenders 65, 70, 75 games a season weren't making it very far in the playoffs. <laughs> and so if you were if you were going to be playing your goaltender that much, you were all but all but saying that your goal was not to win the Stanley Cup, it was to make the playoffs. Just just to make the playoffs and get those extra few games for your fans and that it may very well be that that's what the Jets resigned themselves to this year when they got kind of a rough start. Um, that's really the only reason I can think of that they uh, that they would be playing him that much. Well, I think on this fan podcast we have another reason. The reason is Paul Space Maurice. Maurice loves to run out his guys uh, as much as possible. So even last year, Hellebuck's usage was off the charts for a team that was much more comfortably in a playoff race. I want to ask you about his performance because you've been writing about Hellebuck for a number of years. 
but he's been really up and down. Two years ago, Vezina finalist, had an awesome year by by all the metrics. Last year, uh, he did not look this way. What's your take about him being so up and down? Like, it, is the real Connor Hellebuck like the the person we've seen this year and two years ago, or is he is he somewhere in between? Is he really like an inconsistent goalie that that's going to have a lot of ups and downs, a la Mike Smith? I don't think he's quite Mike Smith because uh, I think the the biggest issue with Mike Smith is lack of sustainable play, right? Mike Smith is kind of like a like an Alex Stalock character, um, which I. Being in the Central Division, I'm sure Jets fans have gotten the adventure of watching him play. Uh, they play a very luck-driven game um, that's that's based on their reflexes being spot on. So when they aren't exactly on their game from a from a reactionary standpoint, they tend to fall off a cliff. Um, that's not so much the case with Hellebuck. I think with him, it's more of I think he's a very intense, stoic player and a very intense, stoic person, and so he goes through those very confident highs and when he struggles I think he takes it a little bit more tough than maybe some other guys do you see a lot of goaltenders like you see a lot of guys like uh like Auntie Ranta I think is a good example of someone who just lets everything roll off his back um Cam Talbot's another one who just kind of lets things roll off his back but yeah they they just kind of they go with the flow they shake it off they let things happen as they may um John Gibson does a very good job of that too I think uh Connor Hellebuck really seems to internalize when he does something wrong because he's very confident in his game and he's very confident in what works for him, what doesn't work for him, and when what he thinks works for him isn't working, I think it frustrates him. And that's when we see those lows. So I think he may end up being a very up and down guy just because his best form is very talented. But when it when it comes down to his, his frustration level with himself, I think... Uh, he does sometimes sort of take things a little harder than he needs to. Uh, what's your take on uh, the coaching? So Wade, Wade Flaherty has been with us for... I feel like it's been forever at this point. <laughs> yeah. What's kind of, like? Do you have a sense of what his sort of ethos around goaltending coaching is? And is, is he going to be pushing Hellebuck in any sort of different direction? You know, it's kind of tough to tell with him. He, uh, I've talked with a couple... I think I've now talked with all of the Jets goaltenders in the system pretty pretty in depth about their development I've talked with Hellebuck quite a bit I've talked with LB um I got to talk with Eric Comrie when he came through Arizona and they all have nothing but great things to say about him not not in that pandering kind of way but in a he listens to them and he's willing to to talk about different types of techniques and maybe look at different ways of coaching to keep up with the times so I think it is kind of a I think there's no real issue there I think, like like you said, usage may be a bigger issue with the team than, than the coaching itself. But I really, really think that he doesn't get praised enough for his willingness to use Adam Francilia, um, who technically is not an employee of the Jets. He just happens to work with a lot of the Winnipeg players. But uh, he, for... I guess if there's like maybe one listener out there now who doesn't know who Adam Francilia is, he uh he does a lot of biomechanics work. He's he's a dry land trainer for mostly for goaltenders, but he's worked with some skaters as well. He worked with Tyler Myers, he works with Justin Schultz. Um and he just gets them into a better physical place when it comes to their training maximization. And so 
I think that I've, and I've talked to a couple more old school coaches who would want no part of having someone like, like Francilia around. Um, they would say, you know, this is, this is my training schedule. This is my system. This is how I like to do it. I don't want you there. And I think, I think Flaherty deserves a lot of credit for the fact that he seems to have really embraced having a Fran around, you know, he's really encouraged all of the guys to use him. And he's clearly coached them in a way that works with what, what Francilla is coaching them off the ice. And so I think, uh, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for that. Yeah. There, I think there's been a lot written about Adam, especially Grossois. Like I think has talked pretty openly about how uh, instrumental he's been uh, to his game. I'm curious, like uh, when we start to project forward for somebody like Hellebuck, who I think is 26 now, do we have a sense of what like players being in their prime for goalies means? Like there's a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, prime age ranges for for skaters and what that looks like for forwards versus defensemen, especially in the in the context of, you know, when do you pay them uh, for those max years? Do we have a sense of what that is for goalies or is Henrik Lundqvist just like ruined that age range for for everyone. <laughs> I think uh, I think that Lundqvist is is a gift and a treasure, and maybe one or two guys a generation are going to be able to mimic that. I really think that when it comes to peak performance, I think a lot of it does come down to your physical peak performance, right? And for for men, that does tend to fall in that twenty three to twenty eight or twenty nine age range, and. Uh, we see it from skaters. That's when they tend to put up their best numbers. And we typically see it from goalies too. Um, so I do think that we still have at least a handful of years for Hellebuck to really be at like the absolute top of his game before he needs to work on load management or, or he'll see a very steep drop off. Um, I think we really get those questions about whether goalies have a different timeline because they can't necessarily ease their way into the NHL, right? We see guys who come up and they're called up to play on defense and they play maybe eight minutes a night with a very good defensive defender, uh, getting sheltered minutes only starting in the offensive zone. Or we see a winger who gets called up and plays eight or 10 minutes a night, once again, always getting offensive starts, uh, playing with two veterans who really understand what's going on. If they start to struggle during the game, you can bench them, put them back in the next game. You can't really bench your goalie for half the game <laughs> unless you want to pull him out right. And so a goalie has to be ready to play successfully for 60 minutes in order to truly be ready to play at the NHL level. And so I think that that age peak is just a little bit later for all skaters when they're really ready to play their maximum NHL minutes. So we just happen to see that as, when a goalie can hit the NHL period because they can't hit the NHL with sheltered minutes and offensive zone starts. Going forward, if there's something that the Jets should be doing better with Hellebuck, do you, do you see things that uh, they in particular need to be thinking about with with him sort of anchoring the goalie line? Is it the kind of situation where teams should be thinking about not only two goalies, but having three capable goalies in the system with just how injuries work? 
they need to limit his starts more for sure. <laughs> I think that's that's number one. I think they need to be better about load management. Hey, I think we're all time. in agreement there. <laughs> that's that's number one buy in a way. Um, but like you said, having three capable goalies and not just having three capable goalies, but having goalies who are flexible and where they can be in your system. Like obviously the Jets ran into a bit of a pickle this year where they from what I understand there had been some talk of the Coyotes potentially trading for Eric Comrie last year. And they'd definitely been looking at him for a while. Nothing ever came into fruition. And then the Jets reached a point where he was no longer waiver exempt. And so whether it was being vindictive or, you know, wanting to have him around to see if he could truly work in their system, the Coyotes snagged him off waivers, then traded him to the Red Wings. And then he finally bounced back to Winnipeg. And so they lost out on, what was it, like four or five months of having him in their system as a third goalie option, um, which is not great. And to the best of my understanding, they don't really have a ton coming up underneath him at the moment. And so they really... I think put too many eggs in the, in the Hellebuck basket and then in the Comrie basket and then liked what LB gave them his first year there. He struggled a little bit to start the season, so they didn't give him any starts, um, which I don't think helps too much with that per se, but they didn't really have, they didn't snag any free agents or anything like that. They didn't really bring in any extra reinforcements in the pipeline to really help out with that. And I think, you know, taking two or three goalies every year at the draft, even if you only take one or two during a week draft year, you can always trade them as assets later. We've seen New York do it. We've seen Chicago do it. We've seen Washington do it. Um, we've even seen the Coyotes do it to an extent. Um, I think the Jets could learn from that, that those are teams that tend to not to have a shortage of good goalies coming up in their system. So you don't even see like necessarily what the Rangers are going through with having Lundqvist, Shesterkin, Georgiev all on the team at the same time is necessarily bad planning. Like you see that as, as kind of the way that uh, goaltending is going. Well, that part was bad planning. (laughs) I think if they had left Shesterkin in the AHL for his first year, given him just a full easy fun season where he was playing at the AHL level and winning and then brought him up next year after trading Georgiev or giving Lundqvist a chance to go somewhere else which it sounds like unfortunately at this point Lundqvist is kind of wanting I think that would have been smarter but I'm not an NHL GM so who am I to question what they did um but no I think that in theory, they had a very good pipeline worked out there where they had two very good guys at the NHL level. They had Shesterkin at the AHL level. And I believe they have at least one other in the system who's currently still playing overseas. And so they had enough in the system to work out, then kind of bungled it a little bit, but that's okay. Um, I think a better example of it would be what the Avalanche have done recently. They had uh, Semyon Varlamov, they traded for Philip Grubauer. They had Pavel Francouz in the AHL. This year they called Francouz up. He's been playing in the NHL with them. And they have their next really good goaltending prospect still playing in Finland because he doesn't necessarily want to be trapped in the AHL right now. I think he'll come over 
either next year or the year following, play his year in the AHL and then move up through the system rather than doing the three goalie thing. Yeah, the Jets kind of didn't really have that this year. And I think it I think it flustered them a little bit when they lost Eric Comrie to waivers. And they they probably could have planned that a little bit better. Just not even for Comrie, but for for Hellebuck too, like you said, he's he's getting a crazy amount of starts there. Sadly, so. that's not even top five weirdest moves that the Jets had to make this year, given everything else that happened. So, uh, like, I totally agree. And like, and the other thing is like, Eric Comrie's like a great guy too. Uh, so I was really he sad is. when he left the Moose. I actually got to see him when when the Roadrunners, I think that's the AHL team for the Coyotes, came through Stockton. I got I went to see him play and got to see him play for the first time in a long time so uh that was cool um i you know i don't know if eric Comrie is like an nhl like everyday goalie or even a backup goalie but i hope that guy succeeds i i really have i, I really like him and his mentality couple last questions so it let's say we get through this uh the current situation and we're in a position to restart the season uh f- just from a pure goalie standpoint do you think we can dive directly into playoffs or do goalies need some games before they get there? I think it depends on how long we go and what sort of restrictions there are on training for a lot of these guys, right? We see uh, like right now, a lot of guys don't have access to ice. And I think if we go too long like this, yes, goalies are going to need a little bit of time to, if not train, at least get in a few scrimmages, like a few intra-squad scrimmages before they play their first game. If it restarted, you know, at the end of May, I think that maybe we would be okay. But at this point, it's not looking like that's super realistic. So if it if it comes down to July or August as our restart period, um, I think they're absolutely going to need a little bit of time to, to gear back up because the way you move on the ice, especially as a goalie, isn't something that you can really replicate doing dry land drills. You can you can replicate some of the usage of the muscles, but the way that they're stretched and the speed with which they're stretched, you really can't replicate that on dry land very well. And so I think I think we'd see a lot of injuries. And I think a few of the players have alluded to that. I think it was Connor McDavid who said that uh we'd have AHL team versus AHL team in the playoffs if we uh if we decided to just restart everything with no with no ramp up period and i kind of agree with them oh i thought he was just talking about the oilers third and fourth line <laughs> but um the <laughs> uh last question goalie analytics as you said completely changing landscape we're in its infancy where should people go to learn about goalie analytics like where are the sources on the internet if people want to kind of do a deeper dive Ooh, so I think that uh, I think that Cole Anderson, he's Ice Cold Data on Twitter. I think that he's one of the best follows far and away because he does a lot of goalie analytics visualization and he doesn't do as much writing right now because I know he's working for one of the private companies. Um, so he can't necessarily reveal all of the data that he's getting, but he does a really good job of putting together Twitter threads that are easy to understand. And it's not just the analytics of on-ice shots that he does, but he also does a lot with usage analytics, which Jets fans would would do well to dive into. He looks at the analytics of save percentages and performances based on days of rest 
and based on days in between starts and based on number of starts and how many injuries there are that correlate to certain things. And uh, yeah, I think that he's he's far and away the number one place to look. Obviously, Ingle Magazine tries to tries to write about that a lot as well when we have the time. I want to shout I want to shout out the um, on Ingle Magazine. They have those weekly or they were doing those weekly video. I don't know what you call them, like those weekly videos where there was like a breakdown of a of a goaltender every week. Like like a video breakdown with with the different goaltenders. We sit down with them and do do like video room sessions. Oh, per reads. That's what it was the called. Per read. That's right. Yeah, and a lot of the goalies love doing it too. Like I can think of maybe one goalie that I've talked to in the last year who when we we said, hey, would you be interested in doing this with the team at some point? Or, you know, would you be interested when, when you guys pass through Vancouver and have time to sit down with Kevin Woodley? Would you be interested in doing it? It was like, oh, it's not really my thing. And uh, the goalie who is not interested in it, his name shall remain redacted for just so nobody thinks thinks poorly of him for it. I think he just doesn't love love looking at video very much. But for the most part, I think just about every goalie that we've talked to is, has loved the idea of it. And like Eric Comrie, once That's again, cool. we were we'll talking Patrick about Waugh's him. name. We'll keep Patrick Waugh's name. No, it's a current, it's a current goalie. But no, it, it wasn't a Jets goalie. I can tell you that much. The Jets goalies are all, they're so much fun to talk to. If there's anything that the team has done a good job of, it's bringing like obviously good skill goalies into the system, but good character goalies too. They're all... They're all really good guys, and they're all easy to root for, whether you are a Jets fan or not. I'm just hoping at this point, like, Hellebuck's hip doesn't fall off by how many games he's played. But outside of that... I think he's pretty confused by that, too. (laughs) Fair enough. Cool. Well, Kat Silverman, thank you so much. You should all follow uh, Kat on Twitter, uh, especially for her uh, sassy analysis of of hockey throughout the year. I really uh, appreciate it, and you're one of the best follows. So thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Stay safe. I'm Kurt Gilback, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast. <laughs>